Oh, so good. Good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? All right. My name is Josh. I am excited to be here with you. It is definitely an honor to spend this week uh, with you. I'm going to have a word of prayer if you would just join me before we jump into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us tonight. Lord, we believe that each person in this room was created by you, designed with a purpose with intentionality, Lord, that millions of years ago before they were physically born, you saw each person. You saw who they were. You saw who they could become. And Lord, we thank you that because Christ has died on the cross, paying for our sins, and though he was buried, he was raised back to life, that we have the possibility, Lord, we have the hope of a relationship with you that is personal, that is intimate, that is life transforming, and that is supernatural, empowered by your Holy Spirit who lives within us. Lord, as I prepare to share from your word tonight, I give you glory. I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins, which you know are many, and ask that you would open the hearts and minds of each person in this room to what you want to speak to each one of them from your word, by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey everyone, uh, Western Christian High School. Man, it is great to be here with you. I, I want to share with you uh, a little bit about myself before I kind of jump into the teaching. I know whenever you have to listen to somebody talk for a while, you're kind of thinking like, who is this person? You know what? So I, I just want to share a little bit about myself. Um, I didn't really embrace the gospel. By that, I mean it, didn't, it wasn't that I hadn't heard about Christ or uh, the truth of you know, what the Bible teaches, but I didn't truly embrace the gospel and a relationship with Christ until I was 19 years old. And I'll talk more about that later. But when I did come to faith in Christ, I joined this huge college group uh, that was at the church down the street from my house. And that's where I met my wife. Chris. Well, she'd become my wife. I think we got a picture of my family we could throw up there. So that, that's my family. Uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about them. So Chris and I met when I was 19 years old. Uh, we got married back in 1995. So 27 years we have been married. And that picture was actually taken. We did a 25-year uh, vow renewal. But because of COVID, it got pushed back to almost 26 years. But it was a 25-year vow renewal. And uh, Chris, just to tell you a few things about her, she is a woman who over all these years, almost three decades now uh, that we've been together, she has supported me, she has encouraged me, she has been a source of strength in my life, she has prayed for me. Um, I could not imagine life without this woman through the joys and the sorrows, uh, the ups and downs of life. Uh, some other things about her is that she's beautiful, she's creative. She's strong and she's very organized, which I need help with that all the time. Um, we, we love to hang out together. We, we play board games. We like to travel. We like to take walks. And we actually, we enjoy the Marvel Universe together too. We love it. Actually, our whole family does. Um, and I'm just thankful for opportunities that we have together to pour into our family and to pour into uh, people in ministry at our church. Uh, the boys there, the men actually, I should say, uh, to my wife's, uh, standing next to my wife there, that's Noah. He's our oldest son. Noah's going to turn 24 uh, here next week. 
And Noah, uh, he actually graduated in your backyard. He graduated from California Baptist University there in Riverside. So yeah, got some uh, Lancers. Well, we're all Lancers, right? But Cal Baptist also is. All right. Yes, Lance up. All right. There we go. Sweet. So Noah was, uh, he's a mechanical engineer major. Uh, He graduated. So he actually got a job working as a mechanical engineer up in San Jose. So that's that's Noah. Um, He's a gifted artist. But along with the art and all the math that he had to do, he also wrestled and played football at the high school there. And uh, he's just an incredibly creative guy. Love him. He's very uh, intelligent and focused. Sam, who's standing next to me in that picture, he's a senior right now at Fresno State University, which is where I live. And uh, Sam, is a, he's, a, he's a civil engineer major. He's on the cross-country and track team there. In fact, uh, last weekend, we were, oh, we got some cross-country runners. Come on. Cross-country runners are usually real polite, you know, but come on. You can yell. You can get excited. Um, we were up at UC Riverside, actually, for a cross-country meet there just this last week. So Sam is honestly like the most disciplined and focused person I know. I mean, he inspires me to, to do better in life. And then standing next to Sam is Gabe, Gabriel. He's our youngest son. Um, Gabriel's going to the Clovis Community College in town. He's working at a local gym. He loves guitar. I don't know if any of you guys, any guitar players here, but um, yeah, we got some. All right, sweet. But uh, Gabe, you know, one of the things I admire about him is he's had some real challenges in life with uh, some mental health challenges and things like that. And he's, he's learned how to face those things. He's been courageous through those challenges, and, and that inspires me too. He also loves to goof around and have a good time. But, so that's a little bit about my family, uh, so you know a little bit about who I am and kind of what my life's about with the family. As far as uh, being a pastor goes, being in ministry, I, uh, I started out as a pastor back in 1999, so whatever, it's like 23 years or something. I started as a college pastor, and then over the years uh, kind of became a, an associate pastor working with students, adults. Then I went over to the Well Community Church as a campus pastor uh, about six years ago and love it. Um, graduated from Talbot School of Theology. So if you guys know Biola University, that's where Talbot's connected. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been great to just be here, uh, here at Hume over the years for all kinds of things. I mean, I've been here for college retreats, marriage retreats, men's retreats. Great to be here with you for a high school retreat. So that's a little bit about my story. Now, I do, I do want to tell you guys a little bit about a time when I was a college pastor and how this relates to what we're talking about today. So uh, one year when I was serving as a college pastor, a couple of, uh, couple of the, the uh, women who were like leaders in the group, they, they came up to me. Their names were Gia and, uh, and Leah. And they, they, uh, they said to me, hey, we've got two guys here from our philosophy class that want to talk to you. So that night we'd had a uh, guest speaker. He was uh, a missionary to Cuba and I thought he gave an awesome job. So I figured, oh, these guys, maybe they want to go to Cuba on a missions trip. Maybe, you know, whatever. They want to talk a little theology. But the first thing they said to me was, hey, the guy who was talking tonight, he said there's some things that we shouldn't do that are wrong. And I go, yeah, I guess he did. And they said, well, he can't say that. Can't tell people there's anything that's wrong. And I said, oh, really? So we talked about it a little bit. And one of the guys, young guys, I remember he was wearing a, a beanie and he had a backpack on. And I said, well, you got to believe there's some things that are wrong, right? He said, no. I said, so if I, if I punched you in the face and took your backpack, stole it from you, like, isn't that wrong? And he looked at me and he said, well, no, if you need my backpack here, you can have it. And I'm like, no, yeah, you misunderstand me. I don't want your backpack. I'm not going to punch you. I, I'm making a point. Like, 
that would be wrong for me to do that. And he said, no, I, I can't say it would be wrong. I would just say that, that you want my backpack. I won't say it's wrong. And I go, okay, let me try a different approach. <laughs> so I said, you, you've heard of Hitler, right? And he said, yes. I said, so Hitler, um, he was responsible for killing 6 million Jews along with millions of other people. And some of his Nazi scientists, they even experimented on babies. That's wrong, right? That's evil. And these two guys, I kid you not, they looked at me and they said, no, we're not going to say that's wrong. We don't know what his reasons were, so we're just going to say that he did it. And I was like, whoa. And at that point, I just, I, I lost. I said, listen, you guys, for you not to not say that's evil, that's wrong. And then the other guy who was kind of listening most of the time, he, he got so mad. I saw the veins rippling out on his neck, and he, he comes up to me, and he goes, you cannot tell him that he is wrong. And so I looked at him, and I said, so are you telling me I'm wrong for saying he's wrong? And all of a sudden, they were like, oh. And they said, thank you for helping us with our thinking. <laughs> they said, now we'll just say that you say he's wrong, and we'll just leave it at that. But why do I share that story with you? The point is that these guys, in their passionate attempts to prove that there's no such thing as right or wrong, they were actually using the very argument that there is a right and wrong, that there is truth, to try to say there was no truth because you can't get around it. And that is what we're talking about this week. Truth be told. The theme statement for this week is that in a world where anything can be accepted as truth, Christ is the ultimate truth. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to walk through the Gospel of John. We're going to actually walk through the entire book. So it's really going to be like a 30,000-foot kind of view where we're going to drop in on a few specific texts and passages to get a closer look. But that's what we're going to do. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the truth about God. And I, I love, you know, the, the, the mission statement, really, of your school or why your school exists is to love the Lord Jesus Christ to teach the truth and to serve others. And, and that's what this is all about this week as well. The theme verse this week is from John 18, verses 37 and 38. This is when Jesus stands before Pilate and he says, uh, Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asks him this question, what is truth? And you know, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Uh, many people today, even like those students that I was talking to, uh, many people today are asking the same question that Pilate asked 2,000 years ago, not really believing that it's a question that can be answered, not really believing that there is such a thing as truth and specifically questioning any truth that would be related to God. Uh, in fact, this is nothing new, however. We might think, well, gosh, the world, you know, it's, things are changing so much, and they are changing a lot. And it seems like sometimes the very ground under our feet is, is being lift, you know, shaken and, and lifted from us. But the, the truth of it is, is that this lie, this deception that there's no truth and that God doesn't have truth, it goes way back. It's been around since the beginning of time. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we read this. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now listen, this serpent, he's later identified as the personification of the devil. He's basically saying something that uh, is putting doubt in Eve's mind. He's saying, did God actually say? It's subtle, it's posed as a question, but this is what is happening today. People are questioning, does the Bible actually teach that? Or is that what it really means? Or did God actually say? Or any of this, you know, just kind of a question. It's subtle, it's, it's undermining. But Eve, she's kind of caught off guard, but she is able to answer here in verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So it's not all the fruit. But then she said, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And then after she gives that answer, the snake gives a more direct uh, line. He says, you will certainly uh, not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we, you know, we are probably familiar, all of us, with the story of what happens next. Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit, sin enters the world, death comes, and then there's this life of separation from God, all because of this lie, all because of this questioning of God's truth. Now, for the theme on truth this week, this is why that matters so much, is because the lies that were planted in Eve's mind all those years ago are the same lies that are being planted in our minds today. One of those lies is that we think we can live autonomous of God. Like, I really don't need God. I can do life without Him. The second lie is that we think we can kind of personally define what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what is lie, uh, based on really just what are the voices that we're hearing? What are all the different voices that are coming at us, whether it's uh, through friends or whether it's through family or whether it's through workplaces or through school or through social media or whatever? We kind of take it all and say, well, I'm just going to, you know, pick and choose what I want to listen to, kind of like a buffet line tonight, like a dinner. You know, I'll just pick what I like and I'll formulate based on the desires of my heart what truth is rather than trusting in the words of a loving God. But what we'll find is that it just doesn't work. Just like the guys I told you about in the story, intrinsically we know, inside we know there is such a thing as right or wrong. There is such a thing as truth or lies. And the more we try to rail against that, the more we try to prove that that isn't actually a true statement, the more we find ourselves actually using truth arguments to prove there is no truth or no right or wrong. So before I go any further, I, I should say a little bit about the book of John, because that's where we're going to be uh, for the week. So a couple, couple things about John is that it's the fourth gospel. So there's, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. They were written at a very uh, close time and proximity in terms of when they were written. And then John's written like over 30 years after the first three gospels. And John's a special guy. He's uh, considered to be in terms of the earthly relationship with Christ, the closest to Jesus. He's called the beloved. In his gospel, he actually calls himself the one who Jesus loved. <laughs> you know, brag much right now. Um, but he's the only one of the 12 who were at the cross when Jesus died. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary and some others were there, but he's the only one of the 12 disciples who was at the foot of the cross. Um, He's given charge of Mary. When Mary uh, at the cross, Jesus says, hey, John, this is now your mother, Mary, this is your son. So he takes care of Mary after Jesus dies and rises and ascends. And then he's, uh, he's exiled later in life on the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Church tradition tells us that they actually tried to martyr John, that he, he was boiled in oil, but he was divinely protected by God. And so they just sent him off to an island because they couldn't actually kill him. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, he also wrote the three epistles named after him as well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The theme of his book is to believe because he wants his readers to understand the truth. There is truth. You can believe that which is true. You can base your life on it. You can trust it. You can believe. You can believe the gospel. And more importantly than believing a proposition of truths or or a, a set of doctrine, which is very important, but what's more important is to believe in the one who is the truth, and that is God himself revealed in Jesus Christ that we have a relationship with Christ. Because you see, guys, I, I went to a Christian school for about five years. And uh, you know what? I, I had a worldview that if you asked me on the street, are you a Christian? I would have said yes. If you had uh, asked me to explain some of the key points of the Bible, I probably could have done it. I'd memorize verses and awana. But did I have a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ when I was your age? No, I did not. It wasn't until I was 19 that I personally met Jesus that the gospel actually became real to me. And we can believe the truth because the truth will set us free, Jesus says. And I know for some of you here tonight, you're hungry for God. You you want to grow. And probably for some of us here tonight, you're, you're like, I came because I had to. Maybe I say I'm a Christian. Maybe I don't. Maybe I believe this. Maybe I don't. I'm not really sure. I'll go with the flow kind of thing. But I'm just here to tell you tonight that God wants so much more for you. He wants a transforming relationship with you. He wants something to happen in your life. He wants you to know that he's real. He wants you to know that he knows your name. He wants you to know that he knows your pain. He knows what's going on when you're away from everybody and you're by yourself and you're in your room and all those thoughts surface that you don't want to hear. Maybe you drown them out with music or or just mindlessly scrolling But when you let those thoughts come and you feel that emptiness, God wants you to know that he understands that, he knows that, he cares, and he wants to meet you right there in that place. And he wants to change your life. And he wants to give you meaning because Christ has risen from the dead and Jesus loves you. And he wants to change your life. And that's what he did for me. And that's what he wants to do for you. Well, let's look at John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, these verses, they clearly define the incarnation of Christ, that God took on flesh and revealed himself to us. Now, God, there's one God, but he has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here uh, we see that all created the world, all gave us life, but at a point in history, Christ, God the Son, entered into human history 
through Christ. This is also called uh, the hypostatic union, that, God is, that Christ is fully man and fully God. But as you look at verse 1, it might sound familiar. In the beginning was the Word. And if it sounds familiar, it's because that's an intentional parallel with the very first book, uh, book and verse, actually, of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, in contrast to a picture of a world that emerges out of chaos, like a world that really is just here sort of by random chance, like it just sort of happened, right? Which is often what we hear, well, you know, it just all kind of just sort of happened. It, it doesn't really have a designer. There's no, there's no overarching narrative of truth to all this. It's just sort of whatever. The Bible gives a completely different picture. It pictures a world that's created by this all-powerful creator, that he designed the world and that in him was life. Think about the implications of this, you guys. The difference. So if there's a creator who created us, that means that we are designed by him. That means there's truth to how we're designed, right? Just like, you know, when you think about any of the technology that's being used here tonight, whether it's the screens or the video we watched or the, the microphones or whatever, right? It's just somebody designed that. That means there's truth in terms of how you use it. You can't just use it for anything. You can't just do, you got to be trained. You gotta, and so the, the picture here is that if there's a creator, he designed us, that means there is truth. And if there's truth, then that means there's purpose. And that means there's morality. And if there's purpose and morality, then there's also accountability. Meaning that one day we will all stand before God and be accountable to him for how we lived our lives. If there is a creator and a designer now, the flip side of it, if there is no creator, then there is no design, then there is no truth, then there is no purpose, there is no morality, and we just sort of do whatever we want, just live, you know, and, and do whatever because it doesn't matter. It's all purposeless. But the problem with that is it leads to sort of nothingness and sort of a sense of there's no reality. Maybe you've heard of Friedrich, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, right? He's the uh, philosopher of Germany, famously declared God is dead. And that phrase has been used a lot over the years. And Nietzsche, uh, he was an atheist, but when he made that declaration and he saw that in Europe Christianity was being rejected, he also feared for Europe. He said, well, when Christianity goes, even though he chose not to believe Christianity, he knew that when Christianity goes and people lose their sense of purpose, that they are created by God and that they are meant to serve one another in love and, and all these good things that they're, they're called to live by, he said, that then, then what's going to happen is there's going to be catastrophe. There's, there's going to be a, a sense of purposelessness. Uh, he called it nihilism. And he, he said uh, there will be widespread catastrophe. And that's exactly what happened. The rise of Nazism communism, extremism, World War I, World War II, what he thought would happen when people say God is dead is exactly what happened. So let's start with the truth then about God. I don't know if you guys remember in the first uh, Avengers movie when uh, Captain America's on the plane with Black Widow and uh, Loki and Thor and they jump off the plane and then Black Widow says, hey, don't, don't jump off, you know, just stay out of this because those guys are basically gods, right? And then Captain America looks at her and he says, uh, 
There's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that, right? You remember that? And then he jumps off the plane. When I was in the movie theater, like the whole theater started like clapping and cheering when he said that. It was really cool. And it might give the impression that, wow, everybody believes there's one God. But, but the truth is, that is actually the minority worldview today, that there's one God. There's, there's really, I mean, there's a lot of worldviews out there, but let me give you two kind of broad that are two primary worldviews. One is humanistic, okay? And to be humanistic, simply put, is to say humanity, not God, is at the center of everything. Humanity. So within humanism, uh, you know, humans get to define truth, humans get to define reality. And on the one hand, you're going to have scientific naturalism, which is basically atheistic uh, evolution, which just says, hey, we're, we came from a cell that developed, and all that this is here is sort of a cosmic accident. It's kind of random chance. It all just sort of happened. Um, the problem with that is it leads to a world that is cold, unkind, driven by instinct, driven by individual desires, uh, a subjectivity to human worth. I mean, that's what basically uh, things like Nazism were uh, based on, right? Is, is that, hey, there, there's, there's sort of this movement towards becoming better and better, and we can eliminate all that are weaker and lesser. Um, that's eventually, you know, there's subjective truth that right or wrong are essentially up to the individual. So there's scientific naturalism. There's also postmodernism, which is, is really to say, hey, th there's no such thing as reality in and of itself. It's a, it's a social construction, right? And, and whatever a group of people feel is real, to them that's real. And so, for example, the idea of, of gender, it's, it's, hey, it's just a social construction. So you can, you can make it be whatever you want. There is no gender. There's no objective reality independent of our thinking and, and speaking about it. And and what happens then, the problem with this is it doesn't actually ref reflect reality because truth only is truth when what I perceive to be reality and what actually is reality line up. So for example, if I'm, if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see a bus going full speed and I say, in my reality, if I step in front of that bus, I can be like vision and it'll just phase right through me. But I truly believe that is my reality. That's what's going to happen. If I step in front of that bus, that is not what is going to happen. I'm going to be dead. And my truth didn't really matter at that point because reality had a sudden impact with my truth, my personal truth. And so that's a pretty extreme example, but we see that happening all the time that we are told to unconditionally affirm every thought and idea is out there, culture would tell us. But then what happens when those thoughts and ideas collide? And there's no possible way that we can unconditionally affirm everything. Or to look at it another way, for the person who would say, well, there really is no truth, or you can't go around telling anybody that they're wrong, by making that very statement, they cannot say that any other view is wrong. Or by saying there's no reality or truth, you have to then reject your own statement that you just made. And so it leads to basically a sense of purposelessness, going off the rails and an inability to define really anything. The other view that broadly would be a theistic worldview, which again is based on creation, that there's a deity, he's pre-existent, he created this world, he spoke this world into existence, that humankind is created in his image and we're created to live in relationship with him. 
This view gives a divinely endowed view of human dignity because what it says is every single person that you see is created in the image of God. Every person you see has dignity and value and worth because they are image bearers of God. Psalm 139 tells us even that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's wombs. God knew us and that there's a wonder to every single person who's been created, that there's an intentionality, there's love, there's something supernatural about all of it. That we're one race, we're the human race. Acts 17, 26 says he made from one man every ethnicity of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And that we're male and female. Genesis 1.26, he created as male and female to together, complementing each other to reflect the glory and the beauty and creativity of our God. This is what design tells us. This is what creation tells us. And that's significant because you are not an accident. You are not here like, oops, oh, you just happened. You're just here. No, you are loved. You are cherished. You are valued by our Creator. You are here on purpose, by God's purpose and grace. Out of his own love and grace is why he created you. And this is the God who Jesus reveals. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And thank God that he's a loving creator. So even though his creation has rejected him, has rebelled against him, has chosen to try to live autonomously of him, he chose to pursue. He chooses to pursue his creation. That's why Jesus came. That's why you're here tonight. Through his Holy Spirit, he's still pursuing you and chasing after you. So let's talk about a few ways that God has revealed himself as our creator. Just just some ways that we can look at the world and say, yes, this world gives evidence that there was a designer, that there's a creator. There's more evidence that there's a creator and a designer than that it's just a random chance that just sort of happened out of nothing. First thing is creation itself. Just looking at creation. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation itself reveals that there's a creator. I remember some years ago, I was in China on a, on a, on a missions trip. I was in a tea house. I was talking to a guy there. Um, and uh, I asked him, um, hey, what do you think about God? And there's a line that I I encountered often in China that the Communist Party has kind of indoctrinated everybody in. He said, "We, we don't believe in God. We believe in ourselves. And I heard that very same line repeated by many people there. And I said, oh, okay. Um, Now, we were in Shanghai, which is a little more westernized than the rest of uh, China, from what I understand. And there was actually a painting of Elvis Presley in this tea house. (laughs) So I said, well, hey, look at that painting there of of Elvis. He said, yeah, it's a nice painting. He said, yeah, it's very nice. I said, do you think, like, did somebody paint that? He's like, what? I mean, do you think somebody painted it, or is it just sort of like, I don't know, can of paint was there, and it just sort of jumped on there and became that painting of Elvis? He's like, no, of course not. Somebody painted that picture. There's an artist to that picture. You can probably see his name signed on it. And I go, yes, I agree. (laughs) I go, now, consider yourself and consider myself. We're sitting here having this intelligent conversation, or somewhat intelligent, (laughs) where we're we're breathing, our hearts are beating, our brains are firing and all, you know, on all these uh, synapses and, and, and we're seeing each other and, and like we're in this restaurant that, I mean, 
don't you think that somebody designed us or that we just sort of came from nothing? I mean, if that painting, which is inanimate, if that painting, which is not nearly as intricate or marvelous as you are or I am, was designed by somebody, why wouldn't you think that we are designed by God? And wouldn't you think it'd be wise to believe in God, not just ourselves, since we can't create any other person ever, no matter how hard we try. We might try to clone them, but we can't create them. And he just, he just looked at me. He didn't really have an answer in that moment. I don't think he'd thought about that. And, and so creation gives evidence to a creator. There's a couple of uh, ways creation does this. Well, many ways. I'm just going to hit on a couple other thoughts with that. Is something called fine-tuning. Maybe you've heard of this. This is uh, what scientists have, have discovered, what they call a, a number of constants of nature. That if certain constants of nature were just... A, a fraction, a, a billionth of a percentage point smaller or larger, there could literally be no biological life on earth. They've identified at least 30 constants of nature. So in other words, like examples would be the specific charge of an electron. Um, if the universe were expanding just a little bit smaller or just a little bit slower, there'd be literally no life. There's a leading atheist named Anthony Flew, he came to believe in God towards the end of his life because of fine-tuning. He just couldn't, he couldn't explain it away as random chance. Uh, there's also something called uh, irreducible complexity. <clears throat> and what that is is when there's enough sign of an intelligent life that you simply can't explain it away as not being intelligent life. So to illustrate that, there's something called the uh, SETI Institute that stands for uh, Search of Extraterrestrial uh, Intelligence, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now it's called the NASA SETI program. So there's a lot of funding behind this. And basically what these folks are trying to do, these scientists are trying to do, is they're trying to find uh, extraterrestrial life in our universe. Now, they can't get on the Millennium Falcon and, you know, light speed and get places like that. Actually, is isn't possible. So they're sending out, like, through advanced technology, all these uh, radio waves and all kinds of electronic waves, and, and they're expanding. They haven't found anything yet. It's starting in 1984, but they're still working on it. But here's their test. Here's how they'll know if they find intelligent life. They said if they find something they call simple order, then they will say, we have found intelligent life. So let me explain what that is in an illustration. If you were to take a can of alphabet soup, open it up and just throw it up in the air and just let it splatter on the ground, um, those letters of the alphabet would be random. There would be no intellect, there would be no design to it. There would be nothing to really consider. So you would just look at those letters and say, okay, that's, that's just random. But if you were to walk by and see those letters on the ground, and it was very simple, it just was like the word me, M-E, that's it. Me, 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 like 10 times. That's what they call simple order. It's not very complex. It's very simple. But that would give evidence that there's some intelligent life that interacted with these, this alphabet soup, right? Then if you saw like a sentence like John loves Mary, that's called uh, specified complexity. That's information. And they would say that's definitely a sign of intelligent life. So the SETI program which has been funded by our government since 1984, with some of the smartest people in the world doing this, said if we just find the word me repeated like five times, the equivalent of that for intelligent life, then we're going to say that's, that's extra evidence of an extraterrestrial that exists. Now, why does that matter for creation? Well, it matters because let's apply that to biological life. Let's apply that to the fact that you exist and I exist. 
And let's apply that to the fact that we have discovered, biology has discovered that in the DNA building blocks of your body and my body, there are literally libraries of information. Not just a simple sentence, libraries and libraries. Like you're, you know, it's like you've got like so much information in you that has led to who you are and what you are, your very existence, all the features and characteristics about you are unique, intentional by God. And sometimes, you know, we, we can do things to like, you know, get healthier or whatever. But, you know, when it comes to like how tall we are and sometimes the basic shape of our nose and things like that, it's kind of set, you know. It's, sometimes we want to change that stuff. But God said, no, I did that on purpose. It's part of those libraries of information that are in your DNA. It's beautiful. And so if we can say, we know there's intelligent life, if we can find a sentence somewhere out in the universe, John loves Mary, how can we not see, how can we be so blind as to not see that the human being was created by an intelligent design, by a loving creator who did this on purpose? It's not random chance. And then Romans 1, verses 19 through 20 Tell us, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So there's, there's kind of a, a double-edged sword there. There's the beauty of creation that's described. It's within us. It's all these things. But it also says it leaves humanity without excuse. In other words, if humanity is to look at creation and all that God has done <laughs> and to not acknowledge there's a creator, well, the Bible says that creation is sufficient to condemn. By just seeing creation, we're accountable to God. Because if we think it just came by random chance and we reject God, the Bible says, no, that, that evidence of creation is sufficient to condemn. Not sufficient to save. We're going to get to that. But it is sufficient to condemn. And one thing that every person of whatever worldview you have, we have to agree with this, that the universe we live in began to exist at some point. <laughs> like we can't say, well, it doesn't even exist because we're here. It began to exist. In fact, um, Science can't explain the origin of the universe. I mean, it can explain, okay, well, there's a Big Bang and it started right there, whatever. But it can't explain where that came from, that force that created the universe. In fact, leading uh, evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins, he admits he can't explain the origin of the universe. Because what science can do is it can explain one combination of things by appealing to another combination of things and a law of nature that connects them together. So for example, the water molecule exists because there's a combination of hydrogen and oxygen coming together. Science can do that very well. And we need science to help us understand the world and how things work and the laws of nature. But, but one part of the universe being explained by another uh, part of the universe doesn't explain where the universe came from. So science can't explain the origin of the universe without something like God that started it all. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens 
are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So creation doesn't save us, but it does point us to a creator. And you know, we don't even need all those complex things I was just talking about. All we got to do is be up here at Hume Lake this week. As you drove in, I mean, I know you guys are tired. I know you're tired right now, so thank you. I respect that you're sitting here with me through this. But as you saw the mountains, as you see the trees, as you watch a sunrise or a sunset, or you look at the ocean, or you think about the miracle of a baby being born, or you look out at the universe and you see the stars and the galaxies, it all points to a creator. It all cries out and says, there is a God. He loves you. He wants to know you. All of this reveals his glory. And he's here. Well, God has also given us a conscience. And I'll move a lot quicker through these last three here. He's given us a conscience. In other words, we have an awareness of, what, of right and wrong. We may not all agree on what right and wrong is, but we all have an awareness that there's such a thing as right and wrong. Even those guys I talked to. They said I was, I was wrong because I was saying there's such a thing as wrong, but that's a statement of right or wrong, a statement of truth or lies. And conscience was, is within us to point us to the fact that we need to understand who is the one who actually defines what is right or wrong. We can't just leave it up to ourselves because we're going to have chaos and anarchy and all these things that have happened and are happening. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say this, "'For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law,' These, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So, see, like creation, the conscience provides evidence for the existence of God. It doesn't provide personal knowledge of God, but it provides the evidence. Because that inner sense that we all have, that there is such a thing as right or wrong, and sometimes if you see an injustice committed, you, you hear about something horrible in the news, you know, some serial killer, something like that, and there's just this sense in you like, that cries out for justice. Something needs to happen. We, we feel that inside. Where does that come from? That comes from God. And, and inside of us, we all know that there needs to be some kind of accountability for right or wrong. We have a conscience. The conscience points us to our need for God, but it doesn't necessarily specifically tell us who the author of our conscience or of truth is. The third way is God's Word, the Bible. And this is actually going to be our subject tomorrow morning, so I'm, I'm not going to spend much time on this one at all because that's for tomorrow. But simply let me say this, is that while conscience and creation give us general revelation about who God is, it's God's Word, the Bible, that gives us specific revelation of who God is. And ultimately, we find out that God's word gives us specific revelation or it has a main theme, not of what. In a sense, there is a what. It's God's redemption of, of mankind, but it's a who. It's Jesus. Jesus said this in John 5, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And that's the fourth way that... Uh, we are, we are shown that there's a designer, a creator. It's through Jesus, the hero of the Bible. He's the main character of the text. He's the primary truth of the Bible. It's Jesus. We've already seen that 
in John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, that Jesus is a preexistent Savior, that uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed from eternity past. And then uh, kind of doing more of an overview here, but at verses 6 through 8, they're going to reveal that John, a prophet, not John the author of the book, but John the Baptist, we'll talk more about him tomorrow, um, he appears and he prepares the way for Jesus. And here's what the rest of the text we're looking at t- tonight says, starting in verse 9. If you've got your Bibles, follow along with me there. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And notice again, we see here even more explicitly, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John says, he who comes after me was before me. And John's actually six months older in terms of the humanity than Jesus. So he's talking here about the preexistent Christ, God the Son from eternity past. So we see that God's plan from the very beginning was to reveal the truth about Jesus to us, that he is the source of all truth. And again, I I kind of already shared with you guys, but this statements here that this light that's come into the world to enlighten every man, every person, that as many, uh, to any who would receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. That's what happened to me when I was 19. See, again, I'd been raised around church. My parents became Christians when I was like a little kid, so they they got me into church. They... uh, we grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood. It was called, it's called Pinedale in Fresno. It's like, you know, kind of gang-infested area. Um, and that's where my mom grew up. That's where, you know, I was living when I was a baby. Um, but, but what happened with all that was my dad, who's from Ohio, his uncle started paying for me to go to a Christian school, which is really cool. I mean, it's a real privilege to go to Christian school, you guys. <laughs> okay, it really is. It's a real honor to be able to do that. But as I was going to this school, uh, I, I really started to learn about God and started to develop a worldview. But, but what I didn't do, you guys, and this is elementary school, I didn't develop my own personal relationship with Christ. But, but by that, what I mean is I went to church, I went to school, I sang songs when we sang them, I memorized verses when I told us to memorize. But when I was left on my own, I didn't read the Bible for myself. I didn't spend time praying and seeking after God and developing a real heart relationship with Christ. So it was kind of here, but it wasn't here. And then guess what happened? My uncle, he got married, and he said, I can't pay for your kids to go to Christian school anymore. So boom, I'm in the public schools in sixth grade. And because I didn't have my own walk with God, I caved to the pressures that the world threw upon me. And for some of you here in this room, if you're not walking with Christ, that's what will happen possibly when you face that when you face the world where you're not in a place where it's safe to be a Christian. We're going to talk about that later this week, but there are 
uh, situations, there are circumstances, contexts we can find ourselves in where it's downright hostile and very difficult to follow Christ. And I experienced some of that as I entered into those public schools. Um, but I'll talk more about that later. But my point tonight with that is there is a truth and there is a hope and there is a God who loves you and there is a Christ who went to the cross in your place and he died and he rose again. And I just want to ask you, wherever you're at, again, I know some of you here, you're hungry for the word and you're delighted to just dig deeper maybe into John and your cabin time and all that. And for some of you, you're just, you're just not sure. And I just want to say I'm, I'm glad all of you are here. And just have an open heart this week. Have an open mind. And uh, ask tough questions if they come to mind. If you're kind of like, man, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I even understand what you just said. Like, ask those tough questions. Let's take a journey together of discovering truth and ultimately leading us to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for being here with us and being a God who does indeed reveal truth. And God, the truth is so much more than just a set of propositional beliefs. Lord, the truth is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But because you are a God who designed and created and who is here and knows the name of each person in this room, you're a God that we can trust. And we can trust the truth you revealed to us in Christ. And it's to him we look now even as we continue to sing and lift our voices in Jesus' name.